Well, hey, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us as we continue our series through the book of John, Come and See. If you don't know me, my name is Ryan. So glad uh, that you've joined us from wherever you are. And a special shout out to my peeps in DeForest. So doesn't it seem like every technological advance that comes up solves like one problem and then uh, creates a bunch of others? Like it's kind of like digital whack-a-mole. So online shopping, I think over the last 15 or 20 years, however long it's been, has, has been an example of this, where it's like suddenly I don't need to go to a store anymore. I can buy pretty much anything I need or want uh, from the comfort of my couch. But then uh, something like a, a challenge arises because it used to be that you maybe say go to a furniture store and you would line up all the chairs and compare them and measure them and touch them and see how soft they were. And you see, you know, like you could see it in real life and you would choose one that you were just confident would work in your home and take it home. And that was it. Well, it doesn't work that way though. Like with online shopping, like I'm embarrassed to say this, but my wife and I, uh, three years ago when we moved to DeForest, we needed a couch. And so we went online and we took the measurements and we, you know, we read about the dimensions and, and the color and we, we understood all the stuff about the couch. But when the couch came, it, we were disappointed because it didn't work in real life. And so we ordered another one. That one didn't work either. <laughs> so we sold both of those. And finally on the third one, we found one that worked in real life. And, and so this is why over the past few years, more and more retailers are trying to close that experience gap with like augmented reality apps like this one from Ikea. I don't know if you've seen this. You can like hold up your phone and, and you can like see like a digital projection of what that piece of furniture would look like in your, in your home, in real life. And you can do this with glasses and makeup and all sorts of things now. And it helps you. And I think this is a helpful way to frame up the story that we're about to read, which is the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in John 13. It's a very familiar story. I would say, whether you're Christian or not, it's one of the uh, most beautiful pieces of literature in all of human history. And it's really familiar, probably for most of us, especially if you've been around the church for a while. And even without like a religious lens or any kind of preconceived notions about Jesus as God or any kind of Christian doctrine, it really stands by itself as a beautiful demonstration of like the human ability to serve and love others. But I would argue that, that there is far more in this story for us. And that if you come to this and you read about Jesus washing his disciples' feet as just an example of the human ability to serve others, that, that it's going to end not in hope or kind of inspiration, but it's going to end in your disappointment. Why? Well, because, because that's not the way love works in real life. That's not the way service works in real life. Like, so many of us have read about what God's love is supposed to be like in the pages of scripture and only to be disillusioned when we see the, uh, the hypocrisy and the weakness and the arrogance of, and sin in ourselves and in our families and in our churches. And so a lot of us just kind of write off the idea about God's love. And we just treat it as like this distant, abstract thing instead of something that can actually touch and influence us the way things really are. And in this passage, what Jesus is doing 
is he's closing the experience gap for his followers because he wants us, he wanted them and he wants us to see what God's love looks like in real life. Understanding it's not some abstract, abstract idea that God is not some kind of like out of touch idealist that Jesus is saying this is what the love of God looks like in the gritty, sin-filled, scandal-laden, shame-based, religiously hypocritical experience we call life in the real world. All right, so it's framed up. Let's dive in. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So, beautiful story. And what we want to ask today is this question, what does God's love look like in real life? What does God's love look like in real life? And we're going to notice four things. That God's love is authentic, it's powerful, it's humble, and it's pure. God's love is authentic, powerful, humble, and pure. Let's start with number one, authentic. That when we see God's love in real life, the first thing we notice is that the, the authentic serves the imposter. The authentic serves the imposter. Here's what I, what I mean. I mean. Think about who's in the room with Jesus. His disciples, right? Or his followers. Good job. Who does that include? Well, this betrayer, right? Judas. Includes Judas. And we read in verse 2 that the devil has already prompted 
Jewish, the, uh, sorry, Judas, the, the Greek word for prompted literally means cast, like, like a fisherman casts a line with a bait and hook into the water. Some translations, maybe yours, say that the devil had put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. See, the devil isn't stupid. When he wants to get us to do what he wants us to do, which is to rebel and, and reject and distrust God, he, he's not like a, like a, someone who just jumps in the water and tries to grab a fish. No, he's like a smart fisherman. He casts a line in the water with a bait and he draws us with half truths and things that sound good when you don't really think about them. So the question is, where are you prompted? Where are you enticed in your heart? You know, as you sit here in church or maybe in your living room, where, where are you tempted right now? Like what's going on in your thought life and in your, your desires that you really would rather not have other people know about? Maybe the people sitting around you. See, you, you know what the devil's prompting does? It, it creates double-mindedness in us. It, it divides our affections because you know what's right, but the rest of you is ignoring that because it's being drawn toward what is evil. And here's Judas sitting in this room with Jesus. He's been following him for three years. He's, he's a leader in the, the Jesus movement. He's a preacher and a teacher. People respect him. They've trusted him with the money. And here he is. He's about to celebrate the highest, holiest feast in all of you know, the Jewish religious system, the Passover feast with Jesus. And what he's doing is he's just kind of going through the motions because he's been prompted. He's divided He's, he's going through the motions and, and he, like he's got a plan developing in his mind that he would rather not have anyone know about, that he's gonna sell Jesus out and cash out of the movement. Judas is an imposter. Or you could say he's a fraud. Or maybe in more kind of modern, familiar terms, you could say he was a religious hypocrite. Have you ever been sitting there, you know, in maybe a service or, you know, uh, maybe with your spouse or s- some sort of sacred place and, and a fantasy or a thought or some kind of urge pops into your mind that you would just be ashamed of if anyone else knew. Like, have you ever thanked God that no one could see your browser history? Or overhear the kind of imagined, silent uh, conversations where you pour out your rage on your spouse or your boss. See, imposters are are people who pretend to be like everyone else, even though they know that they're not. And and you may know or realize that that you're an imposter when you hear yourself saying things like, man, what's wrong with me? I, I don't belong here with these people. And at the end of your time with those people, whoever they are, you feel tired. You're exhausted because you've been putting so much energy into keeping up the right appearances and going through the motions, just like Judas. And here's Jesus, the most authentic, sincere, comfortable in his own skin, human that has ever walked the earth. And he's serving Jesus without guilting him, without shaming him, like there are no strings attached as he's washing Judas's, Judas's feet. He's just serving him because that's what God's love is really like. It serves imposters. 
And God serves imposters and fakes and hypocrites because that's who Jesus really is. He doesn't have hidden motives. He doesn't wear a mask. He doesn't have pretense. There are no strings attached to his love. He loves because that's who he is. He is love. And this is good news to imposters like me and you. It's good news for hypocrites and fakes that Jesus' love is an invitation to be ex- for us to be accepted as we really are and to take off the mask and to begin to open up about the ways that we're split in our affections and we're chasing down promptings and temptations and we're double-minded. And Jesus' authentic love says, you can rest in the freedom to be who you really are in me. So we see God's love in real life is, it serves the imposters. Well, we also see that when we see God's love in real life, that the powerful serve the weak. The powerful serves the weak. And John wants us to know that Jesus is well aware of, of his power and his position. Look with me at verse, verses three and four. It says, John knew that the father had put all things under his power. He's talking about all of the created universe, all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. See, Jesus is here in this moment fully present with his rightful access to the limitless resources of heaven, the limitless power of heaven. And so we get to see how God uses power. See, you and I, everybody has some measure of power and we use power to get ahead, to, uh, to control, to like have some sense of uh, like control like over our bodies. We do it through diet and health and exercise and medicine. We, we try to have some kind of control of our emotions and we do this through, um, through pleasure or through alcohol or drugs or comfort food or whatever. We try to have some sense of control over our relationships and we do this through influence or when it goes wrong, we can do it through lying and manipulation and all of our use of our power and our finances and our resources and and everything is, is mostly about us leveraging that to make our lives better, to use it to our own advantage. But we get to see what Jesus does with all of the power of heaven in this story. See, God's love in real life is he uses his power to serve the weak. He uses his power to serve the weak. Just notice, notice what Jesus does. He dresses himself down and he puts on a towel just like a servant and he washes their feet. Foot washing in the in first century Jewish culture um, was a daily chore. We don't really get this, you know, because we have showers and we have shoes, you know, that protect our feet and keep them clean. We have sewer systems that keeps the excrement off of our sidewalks and our roads. We have podiatrists and we have access to antibiotics or wart patches or fingernail clippers or, you know, pedicurists or whatever we need that kind of quickly fix those things, those ingrown toenails and and those things that could cause serious infections if they were just left unattended. But this is what first century Jewish feet looked like. They were exposed. They didn't have those things. And so I think the nearest uh, example that we have today in our culture is, 
is what homeless people experience or people who struggle with homelessness who are on their feet all day and night and they don't have the things that you and I enjoy, uh, which is why there's this beautiful movement all across America in so many cities, including right here in Madison, uh, where uh, people, healthcare professionals and, and others uh, provide foot care for people struggling with homelessness, like this one right here. This is, um, this is very similar to uh, a ministry that a, par- uh, a friend of my parents runs in Minneapolis called Soul Care for Souls, caring for uh, the feet of people who are dealing with homelessness. But in the first century, in first century Jewish culture, if you traveled to someone's home, you would be greeted by normally a servant whose job it was to take off your sandals and wash your feet. And, you know, many Jewish uh, homes, they would have like a a Gentile or or like a non-Jewish servant designated for this task. And if they didn't have a servant, then probably the next in line would be like a child. And if they didn't have a child around, unfortunately, uh, I'm not like espousing this, I'm just saying it how it was, then uh, it would be a woman, a wife, maybe if she was willing. But here in this situation in the upper room, it's just 13 dudes. So what should have happened is the person who was lowest on the totem pole shouldn't have got, should have gotten the hint and taken the initiative to wash everybody else's feet, like the new guy or the guy who kind of owed everybody a favor. But no one took initiative. No one was willing to do the menial work of washing feet because that's what slaves do. And so what Jesus does is he dresses himself down and he shows us how God uses power and position. He doesn't use it to his own advantage, but he uses it to the advantage of those who are weaker than him. This a story that hit home for me um, a few years back. The story of this uh, Christian man, he was a Roman Catholic priest. His name is Henry Nouwen. You may have heard of him. He's a prolific author who was, he passed away years ago. He wrote like 39 books on cultivating a vibrant spiritual life. He spoke all over the world uh, fluently in five different languages, which is insane. He taught spiritual and pastoral theology at Yale and then at Harvard. I mean, this guy was like uh, in high demand. And then at the very peak of his career, he shocked the Christian world when he gave all that up and he moved to Trulsi, France. He moved to a home that was designated for adults with severe disabilities. And there he began working one-on-one as just an assistant with this young man named Adam. Adam couldn't speak, couldn't get dressed, he couldn't bathe or feed himself. And Henry wrote about, like, about the, his experience with Adam uh, in, in a memoir called Adam. You can look it up yourself. And he tells a story of when this distinguished colleague comes to him. So this is a Christian, another kind of high up guy. And he comes to visit Henry and he's surprised at, at how angry this guy is. The, the guy came and he said, did you, this is a quote from the book, did you leave the university where you were such an inspiration to so many people to give your time and energy to Adam? You weren't even trained for this. Why do you not leave this work to those who are trained for it? Surely you have better things to do with your time. See, before you get angry at this visitor, 
You have to realize that this is the way we think about power. Most of us, at least, that this colleague believed that in the real world, it's a waste to use your power uh, on things that, that, won't, that won't have any payoff. Like, sure, we're happy to step in and help, like if, if it's a work thing or if there's a lot of social pressure, you know, if we get kind of the selfie moment and we can virtue signal or whatever, or if there's a paycheck involved, it's just a part of your job. But what if, like ask yourself this honestly, what if there's no reward in it at all? Like, what if, what if it really isn't the best use of your time? What if it's really not the best use of your educational credentials or your money? What if there really are other people who would be better at serving that individual than, than you are? What then? Well, I think that's when we realize that most of what we call service is really about us and not about the people that we're serving. But in real life, get this, God's love sets aside power for weaklings. Paul, the apostle, is reflecting, I think, on this very story, uh, which was circulating around the early Christian movement. And he writes this to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter two. He says, Jesus, being in very nature God, full access to all of heaven's power and resources, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. See, this is, this is amazing, scandalous news for weaklings like me and you. What this means is that God's love isn't afraid of being wasted on people who have very little to contribute. It means that his love is for the zeros, like us. His love is for people who are too tired and exhausted and depleted. His love is for the powerless and the helpless. And that's what he uses his power to serve. He serves people that everybody else, even Christians, would just kind of politely write off as a waste of time and resources because that's what God's love looks like in real life. Power serves the weak. So we see that God's love in real life looks like the authentic serving the imposter. It looks like the power serving the weak. It also looks like the humble serving the arrogant. The humble serving the arrogant. See, Jesus is going around washing their feet and he gets to Peter. And by this time, Peter knows exactly what he's gonna say. He's been triggered. And so he says in, uh, in verse eight, he says, you shall never wash my feet. Here Think, thought about like how much audacity you would have to have to command Jesus what to do after you've seen him raise someone from the dead. You shall never wash my feet. Why is Peter so riled up? Well, so foot washing was, it was partly about the physical kind of cleansing and, and it was about hospitality, but it was also uh, part of like your standing in the religious community. Because ceremonial washing was a huge part of Jewish religious life. And it was this constant practice. If you were a, a good religious Jew, you would understand that your physical cleanliness was a symbol of your spiritual cleanliness. So you would see your physical filth and defilement as part of, um, as like connected to the spiritual filth that contaminated holy 
spaces and holy events. And so part of getting ready for this high and holy feast, the Passover uh, feast would have included days of like ceremonial washing and you would be praying as you wash your hands and your head and your, your body. You'd be preparing your heart and your mind to be holy before God because in the real world, we sin and we defile ourselves and we are in constant contact with the, the vandalism of evil and the darkness of disease and death. And you just, you don't bring that into God's presence. It's kind of like um, if you were having surgery uh, and, and you were being wheeled into the operating room, you would not want your surgeon to come in with dirty hands and, and like torn jeans because he had just buried the family dog Like you wouldn't want him wiping his nose on his sleeve before he operates on you because that would contaminate that holy and clean space. So here's Peter. He's washed himself. He's clean. And he says, Jesus, you're making me uncomfortable. You're offering to clean me, but I've already cleansed myself. I've, I've done the work. I don't, I know my feet are dirty. I don't want you to get too close. Just let me take care of that. See, Peter, in his self-sufficiency and his religious pride, his arrogance, he's looking at his feet and saying, if you clean my feet, what does that say about me? Have you ever had your religion offended? What are you saying about me? You're saying I don't love God. You're saying I'm not a good person. That's what Peter's feeling right now. All the religious things that that Peter has done to make himself worthy of God's presence, Jesus is saying that's not enough. He's saying it with love, with gentleness, and with humility. Uh, 1 John uh, 1, 8 and 9 says it this way, if we claim to be without sin, and this is to Christians, this is to religious people, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, there's so much beauty and so much power in religious acts and going to church and in serving others and paying our tithes and to doing all those things. There's so much there. But if those things become our justification, then we become our own saviors. I've done the work, Jesus. I'm a good person. You know, that's the first, that's the, the main thing I hear. When I ask Christians or non-Christians, what is it that makes you think you're going to heaven? What is it that, that makes you think that, that you're a worthwhile person before God? That, that, what is it you, you think that makes him love you? And most people will say, because I'm a good person, basically. Sure, my feet are dirty once in a while, but they're not as dirty as everybody else's feet. Can't we just accept that nobody's perfect? I'm not judging anyone else. I don't want to get judged. And then they look at Jesus, who's coming at us with a water bowl and a towel. He wants to wash our feet. And we say, don't get too close to my sin, Jesus. You're making me uncomfortable. Jesus comes to us with humility. He approaches our moral superiority and our religious arrogance. And he says, I'm not here to condemn you. I am certainly not here to shame you. I'm here to help you confront the reality that all of your religious activity is not going to be enough. So will you trust me enough to let me justify you? And God's humble love is good news 
for all of us arrogant, self-sufficient, self-righteous people. It's good news. And we can relate to Peter's reaction because it's just like ours. That self-sufficiency, that pride, that defensiveness. But what we realize is that there's no such thing as a self-sufficient Christian. And we live in a world that says, just grade yourself on a curve. Just kind of compare yourself to those around you. And if, if you're not worse than anybody else, then you're doing okay. But Jesus wants us to realize, well, I'm, I'm not okay. My feet are dirty and I'm bringing, I'm bringing sin into God's presence. And Jesus wants to do better for me and for you than just grade us on a curve based on how good of of people we are. He wants to help us recognize what we're carrying into his presence. He wants to forgive us and cleanse us and heal us, not just of our sin, also of the pain and the deep trauma of sin that's been done to us. We see the humble serve the arrogant the last thing that we see in this story is that when we see the love of God in real life, we see the holy or the pure serve the defiled. We see the holy and the pure serving the defiled. See, Peter's kind of rickety veneer of religious self-sufficiency, it's kind of shaking and shuddering when Jesus gets too close to his filth. He's invading his personal space. And then he, he says this in verse eight, to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, uh, unless I wash you, you can't be part of what I'm doing in the world. You're not gonna be able to reflect the love of God because you haven't received the love of God yet. So the only way to have part with Jesus is to let him kneel at our feet and touch our deepest sin and shame pain. It's the only way. Where, where is that for you? Where are you carrying the vandalism and the defilement of sin? Ignoring it, grading yourself on a curve, saying, but I'm basically a good person. But where is that thing that you, you know is, is just defiling? Because Before you can love the way God loves, you have to receive his love. You have to let his purity and his holiness touch your defilement. And this happens at the cross. See, the cross is where we see heaven get on its knees and offer to cleanse us from sin, not just with water, but with with God's very own lifeblood poured out for you. you. Have you responded to that God? Have you let him touch your defilement and your pain? And have you like, let your pride be crucified on the cross with Jesus? Now what? Well, this story is, this is amazing news for us. For imposters and weaklings and arrogant and defiled people like me and like you. So let me just suggest that there are two ways we can respond to this authentic and powerful and humble and pure love of God. Number one is we can let Jesus wash our feet. We can let Jesus wash our feet. See, uh, David, uh, the King David in the Old Testament, um, he messed up big time. He, uh, he had like this political uh, sex scandal uh, breakout and then he covered it with, um, with a, a murder. 
He covered it with a murder. And then months later, he's confronted by the prophet Samuel who under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit calls him out on his sin and, and David repents. And here's what he prays in Psalm 51 verse two. He says, wash all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Have you prayed that prayer to God? What would it look like to recognize that God is on his knees serving you, ready to, ready to wash you clean? What would that look like? If you haven't prayed that prayer, would you just, just pray that prayer even now? Wash me clean. The second thing, which really is, is there are two ways of, of looking at this, but Jesus said to his followers, like, okay, I've set an example for you, so do what I've done to you, do that to one another. So what does this mean? So a lot of people in church tradition have, have interpreted this as like foot washing is kind of a third sacrament. So like baptism and communion and wash each other's feet. And so, you know, some, some you know, um, church traditions do that. And, and that's probably fine. It can be a beautiful, uh, you know, symbol of, of humble acts of service. But I think there's, there are more practical ways uh, to, to act this out. So first, first is through tangible acts Small, tangible acts of service. Small, tangible acts of service. And this simply means doing things that reflect the heart of Jesus to people who can't pay you back. So it's mowing someone's lawn, helping someone out who is financially hurting, maybe teaching in children's ministry, uh, signing up for serve week, you know. And some of us, you know, we're, even the thought of doing that is just really actually discouraging because you're already serving your family full time. You've got little kids at home or maybe you've got, you know, someone who's in your home with special needs and all you do is serve them and you feel tired and, and maybe you feel unappreciated and lost. But just think about what Jesus has done. He took all the power of heaven and, and he he used that power to do the most menial task. So this means that everything that we do, those, those small tangible acts of service, whether it's to people in our own family or out in the community, that those things are not menial, that they're glorious. That's the first thing. The second thing is we can cultivate safe, intimate spaces for confession. Confession of our sin, confession of our pain, a place where we can open up about who we really are and have someone listen and pray with us. And that takes time. You have to cultivate that kind of relationship. So two ways to follow Jesus' example. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you've showed us what God's love looks like in real life. It is not some abstract, idealistic thing that we have to strive for, but it's real and it's here and it's now. So Lord, help us respond wisely to your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.